0: including Christian, perhaps as a helper, definitely not in fifth grade anymore. We are on page 911 in your pew Bible, if you are our guests, My name is Josh, have gotten to be one of your pastors here for quite some time, and we are working as a church uh, through the uh, book of Acts for the summer, probably not your most uh, recognizable summer series as it does build and we know that vacations uh, lead us elsewhere uh, but we're uh, thankful for online and still being able just to go to the next passage and uh, thankful for that hymn, amen. I encourage you in your discipleship this week with people maybe to learn that hymn and meditate on each of the verses uh, as we think about how God sovereignly uh, does all and ordains all that is right for what you are going through and what our church is going through. I hope that would be a blessing to you. As we thought about God's sovereignty, we'll pick that up a little bit at the end of Acts chapter 4. Again, page 911 in your pew Bible. I imagine that uh, many of us are grieved by the lies that sometimes people believe about Jesus Christ. If, If you're here as our guest, and maybe you're not a believer, but you're here still searching, and you go, would I really be concerned about lies that someone believes about Christ Here's perhaps a one-to-one equivalent, just for you to kind of get into the sermon with me. Would you be concerned if somebody believed a lie about you to set them straight? I think all of us in our heart desire for people to know the truth about us. And so, if you can feel that way about your own self, realizing how Christ is our greatest treasure, He is the God that we worship. As Christians, we are, peop- we are people that are sincerely concerned that people believe things that are true, about Christ we want them to experience the same life and forgiveness that we have found in Christ but sometimes even with that desire sometimes we wait for that perfect opportunity to clarify the truth and to share with our friends and our co-workers and our relatives the good news but we come to Acts chapter 3 and 4 and I think there is a striking difference between Peter and us if you were to put yourself in Peter's position, he has just done a miracle. It is the first miracle since Christ has ascended. There is a sign. People don't know how he did this sign, and so Peter gives a sermon. Sign to sermon. Okay, and But yet, it's kind of in a hostile environment. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 4. And if we were put in his exact same position, I doubt if we would have assessed the situation as really an opportunity from the Lord. Most likely, we wouldn't have acted upon it. Probably because we have increasingly defined evangelistic opportunities as those rare instances where we perceive that others, right, are open to the gospel. When we read the situation and we think, wow, we have a willing audience. Now I'll share. Wow, uh, they seem sympathetic to what I'm saying. They're not even asking any questions. They're not giving any rebuttals. That's the time for me to keep talking about Jesus. Many of us, at least some of the time, are like the farmer in Ecclesiastes. The farmer in Ecclesiastes, he observes the wind... He goes, ah, now's not the right time to sow. He observes the clouds and he says, nope, now is not the right time to reap. And like the farmer who has an empty barn in harvest, sometimes we too will never water or plant If we always have our moistened finger to the air, raised, trying to discern if that person is really ready for us to share. Is now the right time? I I don't know. And we keep waiting for that perfect opportunity. Friend, do you submit the call of the Great Commission? to the will of those who are ill-disposed to our message. Put it another way, has your comfort trumped your calling? Do you bring up the topic of faith so long as it doesn't threaten your image, your credibility, and perhaps most sacred of all, our relationships? You know, Friendship evangelism is a great thing, but sometimes we spend so long in that friendship never coming out that we are Christians, that now there is so much more to risk and so much more to lose if we say it now. Or do you submit the call of the Great Commission to the Lord your God, who Bill read from Psalms 2, made heaven and earth and the sea, who the world, the nations plot against, but yet they plot against him in vain. Who do you submit to, the fear of man or the fear of God? I submit to you that nothing keeps our mouth shut as Christians more than the disease to please. We all have it. That disease to please, to be liked, not to lose our credibility, not to use our, our image. But all throughout Acts, we are continuing seeing that Jesus blesses his word through the power of the Holy Spirit as we open our mouth. And so every chapter in Acts, God's word is going forth right every time there is a miracle every time there is opposition every time someone is thrown in jail every time someone is taken out of jail every time they split to a new region they see it as an opportunity to make jesus known as an opportunity to testify about jesus to bear witness to Jesus' death and his resurrection from tables to temples from porticos to prisons we find the church proclaiming, speaking boldly, persuading, reasoning from Scripture. So what we're going to do this morning as a church is we're going to allow God's Word, hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit, to reset our understanding of evangelism. We need to reset. You're a gaming console, you don't like how the game went, you hit reset, you get to start all over. We need to reset. Summer's a great time for that to kind of re-get our priorities around us. And we want to reset our lives so that we can live an Acts 1-8 life, a sent life. In order to live a sent life, here's something I want to get you to consider. Would you consider stop conceiving of witnessing as sharing the gospel? In order to reset your expectations, would you stop conceiving of evangelism as sharing the gospel. You read any book, you listen to any person talk, and you will inevitably hear,
1: I got to share the gospel today.
0: I got to share with this person. And, It conveys a lot of really good news. In one sense, it's a perfect word to use because we get to share the treasure we possess with somebody else. And it's a privilege, right, to do that. Look and see the treasure that I have found. Come, let me share with you about Jesus. But in another sense, the Bible never uses the term share in reference to evangelism. So John has this semantics. That's what pastors do. They do word studies. No, I think the semantics actually has some implications for how we have our expectations around evangelism. When you think of sharing, don't you typically think that sharing is the act of giving to someone something that they want? You're going to give to somebody something that they want. And so kids are supposed to share toys with that kid who wants it, right? And adults share recipes after someone says, wow, that was delicious. Is that a family secret or can I have the recipe? You're asking for it. Perhaps you even share money with a guy on the street who has a cardboard sign and he is asking for money. And so you share. In each case, we share something because they're asking for what we possess. But the reality is, Few people are ever begging for us to share the gospel with them. Perhaps in the past we could get by and rely on there's a reasonable percentage of people out there in the world who have a favorable view of church. We have VBS here and parents go, yeah, I want some free babysitting and it's not a bad thing for my kids to get some religion. And so they drop their kids off at VBS. Maybe. But those Better days don't appear to be on the horizon from my watching of the news because Christians seem to have now become the excluded minority. No longer are we what is right with our nation. More and more we are looked at as what is wrong with our nation. We're intolerant. We tell other people that their view of religion is wrong, that Jesus is the only way. And we get more and more marginalized. Peter And his epistle calls us exiles. This morning we're going to see from Peter's example here in Acts 3 and 4, a message that he continues through his epistles, how we can evangelize as exiles. Not decrying our lost status, but saying here we are as exiles. What do we do? First thing is the key to doing evangelism. The first thing we're going to see here is the key to doing evangelism. There's two things that are key to doing evangelism as exiles, and then one implication. We'll look at each of those. Two things, and then one implication. Let's first start here in Acts chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Peter and John have given a man who was lame from birth, in the name of Jesus Christ, the ability to stand and walk. He's leaping. He's praising God. Peter gives a sermon on how that happened, and now we pick up our story here in Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So the last time Peter had an open-air sermon, New York City trip, open-air sermon, 3,000 were saved. Now he preaches again, open-air sermon. Another 2,000 are added, a total of 5,000 open-air preaching. We should do this sermon at the beach. All right. Verse 5, On the next day, their rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, can you imagine getting brought in into a trial for a good deed that you have done? Right. That's the context. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders uh, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Was it required to do evangelism as an exile? First, real Christians speak. Real Christians speak. They open their mouth. This is Peter's second open-air message, and what I love about this one, compared to the first one, is that Peter is testifying, and he goes verbal before he even knows the outcome. You see, we don't want to go verbal until we know what the outcome is going to be. We want the outcome first. Are they going to be favorable? Are they going to listen? Are they going to interrupt us? Are they going to ask me a question I don't have the answer for? We want all of that information. But Peter goes verbal before he even knows the outcome. You guys think, wow, well, maybe Peter was naive. No. He wasn't naive. He wasn't even optimistic. If you go back to John 9 and you read that this afternoon... Peter has a one-to-one equivalent. His expectations are clear. He knows that in John 9, Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. Same kind of parallel. This guy's lame from birth. Jesus heals a man that's blind from birth. And here's what the results are. The blind man gets excommunicated from the temple. And Jesus gets uh, executed on the cross. Peter's fully aware of the last time somebody healed somebody from birth, what it resulted in. And yet still Peter says, I'm going to testify who this Jesus is. So real Christians consider it a privilege. Real Christians consider it a necessity to speak about Christ in his word. And look at the result, verse 13. Here's the result. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. How did they recognize? What was it about Peter and John that made them think of Christ? Well, Peter is preaching the exact same sermon that he heard Christ preached. In Luke 20, verse 17, Christ said, Behold, he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that it is written? The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Just a couple couple weeks earlier, Peter heard Christ preach the cornerstone message. Now Peter is preaching the cornerstone message. A message that he does not stop preaching all the way until his epistle. What Bill read in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10. Peter can't stop talking about Jesus. And they go, he's been with Jesus. How? Because their message is the same. Here's the application for us. God can use anybody. God can use anybody. The scribes. The Sadducees, the priests, the elders, they are greatly annoyed. Did you see that in verse 1 of chapter 4? I'm sorry, verse 2. They all came together greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Here they have nobodies like Peter and John preaching. No seminary degree, no ordained pastors, just ordinary people. And the scribes and the elders and the Sadducees thought, it's my privilege. It's my responsibility to preach. This is my pulpit. How how dare you influence the people to go somewhere else? the point is, don't underestimate what God can do through you just by speaking about the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, you have a unique opportunity that the scribes and the elders and the Jesus and modern-day pastors don't have. When I talk about Jesus in my neighborhood, at my dinner table with our friends, they expect me to do that because I have pastor as a first name. But when you do it, when you talk about Jesus, when you bow your head and pray, when you pray in Jesus' name and you talk about his resurrection, the difference it makes in your life, no one can say, you're, you're paid to say that. Right? God can use you whether you're a man or a woman, rich or poor, five years old or 90. He can use you as long as you are bold. Did you catch that there in Acts 4.13? They saw the boldness of Peter and John. It's a word that occurs 11 times in the book of Acts when the church is praying and preaching in boldness. Look over at chapter 4, verse 29. Here they are, here are the church praying, and now the Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with... Boldness, yes, boldness. To take the mission of the church seriously, we are going to need to be bold. Well, how do you know if you're bold? First notice that boldness is not belligerence. Boldness is not belligerence. Peter addresses his audience respectfully. Look at verse 8, Acts 4, 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Boldness doesn't mean you to get in somebody's face, yell at them, argue, be intimidating. Peter addresses them respectfully, right? Boldness and bravery is also not bravado, not this false sense of confidence. In Acts chapter 4, when we get there to Peter's question in 4.7 and Peter's answer in 4.8, we have to remind ourselves that Peter is now standing before this, this group and it is a courtroom trial setting. They got arrested. Arrest follows the annoyance. So they are annoyed in verse 2, they get arrested verse 3, and now they are being formally examined in verse 7. And Peter is bold. One commentator said this, boldness is being clear in the face of fear. Boldness is being clear in the face of fear. Put yourself in Peter and John's shoes just for a second. Peter and John are before the very men they have been brought up to respect. Their whole lives looking up to the elders, the scribes, the Sadducees. These are men that led worship in the temple. They could have been disciplined out of the Jewish temple. They could fear future imprisonment. We know that they've already been in prison for at least one night. They could have been afraid of death, knowing that just days ago, weeks ago, their leader, Jesus, died on the cross, who left them with these words, take up your cross and follow me. What is comfortable about take up your cross and follow me? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. Knowing who they were talking to, perhaps the easiest tactic could have been just don't say the things that are going to make those people disagree with you. I mean, when Peter gives a testimony by what power or by what name you do this, what if Peter would have just stopped? It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that did this. Just just, just in there. The whole group would have been like, oh, yeah, we're talking about the same guy, aren't we? You let them think that you're agreeing when really you have a couple cards that you're holding But Peter, nope, instead he leaves no doubt. Look at the clarity with which Peter speaks, verse 10. 410, Peter says, Let it be to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Jesus who? Well, here Peter touches the third rail. He starts meddling, Jesus Christ. That's a title, not his last name. It means Messiah, the anointed one, the one you've been waiting for. And just in case you're confused about which Jesus, this is not Jesus down the south end, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter is working very hard to rule everyone else out. There is no salvation in anyone else. It's this Jesus, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Don't be confused on who I'm talking about. There was a lot of Jesus back then. It's this one. And Peter turns the tables from being examined. Did you catch what he does next? He begins to place blame. Look at verse 10. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You're on trial. You answer clearly. And now you turn the tables and you accuse. You did this. You killed them. Peter is stoking the embers of the fire. And my question to you, especially New Englanders who like to ski, is Peter over his skis here? Is he going beyond what he should? Peter, you've annoyed them. <laughs> you've aggravated them. You've accused them. I love it, don't you? Osgena says this. In our age, most people are untroubled rather than unreached, unconcerned rather than unconvinced. You know what peter just did he says i'm gonna make you concerned i'm gonna make you troubled right and he what he does to pry open their closed minds and their closed hearts you can hear it in the courtrooms question defendant counsel you've aggravated us you've accused us but counsel do you have an argument and peter says look at exhibit a Psalms 118, and he quotes the Old Testament, right? What does he say here? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Friends, as you go out to New York City, see Peter's tactic here. As you go out to your workplace, or your friends, notice that Peter starts with their prophets to turn the table. He says, oh, I understand that you believe in the Old Testament. Great. Consider Exhibit A, Psalms 118, and it cuts both ways. You can't say, I believe the Old Testament, and then say, oh, no, no, I don't want to know who that's about. And so all of a sudden, they get cut to the heart, and Peter, in his great skill, finds a pressure point to torment them with worry. Did we miss them? Or to arouse a desire to know the truth. Peter raised a titanic question for them. Is your study of the scriptures for truth? Or is your study of the scriptures for power and prestige? I'm laying Jesus before you, right from your Old Testament. Do you want to know the truth? Or do you want to close your mind, close your heart, and say what? I'm only in this for the power and prestige. Whenever we face God's truth... We can either dig in our heels or we can fall on our knees. Let's see what they do. Acts chapter 4, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You see the difference between the boldness of the apostles and the cowardness of the priests and the elders? The apostles, the disciples, preach publicly. But the scribes and the elders, they meet for private deliberation. They hold a private meeting. They put them out and they get together in secret. And they go from, how did you do this in verse 7 to verse 16 where they say, how will we handle you? It's a crowd control issue. They skip the step of, is this true? Friends, especially those that are going to New York City this week, know this. People have motives for not wanting Jesus to be the Christ no matter what we offer for intellectual rationale. People have motives for not wanting Jesus to be the Christ, no matter what you offer them by way of evidence, right? The will is far from disinterested. People are truth twisters. So it will never ever only be about just the evidence for the brain, God has to what? Get to the heart. You can miss heaven by how many inches? Help me out. 18, thank you. My neck's a little long. I think it might be more like 20. All right, giraffe over here, but you know, anyways, people can miss what is staring them right in the eyes. If you've never seen this cartoon, I wanted to play
1: a little clip for you if you've kind of lost well, it in the this long lo- oh, the our Lord us right, oh you sweet little simpletons we'll people don't rise from the dead except for that one time right. Jesus rose from we'll the dead we'll go to uh, yeah. that was 40 awesome seconds if you could know, we'll well, how about the multitude of miracles in the bible chief among them the resurrection of our lord Jesus oh you sweet little simpletons people don't rise from the yeah riddle us that Patrick stuff like what well how about the multitude of miracles in the bible chief among them the resurrection of our lord Jesus Oh, you sweet little simpletons. People don't rise from the dead. Except for that one time Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that was awesome. No, what I'm saying is that Jesus never rose from the dead. And how do you know that, Patrick? Because it's not possible for people to rise from the dead. Yeah, we know. That's why it was sort of a big deal when Jesus rose from the dead. Look, I think you're far too uneducated to understand this, but if people could rise from the dead, then people would rise from the dead. If Jesus could rise from the dead, surely someone else would have risen from the dead as well. Other people have risen from the dead. Like who? Like all the people in the Bible who rose from the dead because Jesus rose them from the dead not long before he himself rose from the dead. Well, obviously you can't count those examples. Why not, Patrick? Because they come from the Bible, and the Bible is a ridiculous book full of silly stories that couldn't possibly happen, like... People rising from the dead? Exactly. Right. So according to you, the resurrection doesn't prove the existence of God because it never happened. And we know it never happened because we know that people can't rise from the dead. And we know that people can't rise from the dead because no one ever has risen from the dead if you don't count all the people who have risen from the dead. I think I'm onto your little trick here, Patrick. Yeah, you're a sneaky little secularist, Patrick. So your strategy for improving- So this is
0: uh, Donald and Connell, uh lutheran satire and they meet richard dawkins right and their whole point in that argument is trying to say that people just already have their minds and their wills made up and at times our hearts can be as crooked as corkscrews romans 1 18 says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness what do they do they suppress the truth they suppress the truth and unrighteousness but here's the good news. Unbelievers, even though they suppress the truth, it is still truth. So they can never, actually ever be done away and completely get away from Christianity. Friends, persuasion is possible. Acts twenty six twenty eight. King Agrippa told Paul, in a short time, you almost persuaded me. True stings. Sometimes our job in meeting with our friends and meeting with our relatives and co-workers and witnessing is just to be like that wasp that stings their conscience for a second, that punctures a hole in their worldview. And because Christianity is true, they can never be done with it for good. Turn over in your Bibles to Acts 6-7 and see what happens. We don't know the timeline here, but maybe days, maybe weeks later, you might think that this had no impact on the scribes and the Sadducees and the elders. But look at Acts 6-7. Here's hope for you witnessing consistently to neighbors and coworkers where you feel like you're in exile. And the word of God continued to increase. and The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Here's our last phrase. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Peter stung them. We don't know how long it took. But some of them could not shake the truth of Psalms 118. Have we rejected this cornerstone? So when you speak and when you are bold, you can expect the next thing to happen, that you will be suppressed. Expect to be suppressed. Peter and John are given a command they can't obey. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God To listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They tell them, don't talk anymore in this name. And how many of us are more than reticent to obey that command? Willing to hush up. Our culture wants to blanket the church, blanket the message of the gospel, to muffle Jesus' name. (coughs) Jesus. You know, it's like you just kind of want to sneak that in there, right? By the time I would say that most of us have been to third grade, the culture has squeezed us into its mold and has pressured us to lay low in the weeds like a largemouth bass. Just lay down low in the weeds. Don't bite anything. I think of the movie The Hunt for the Red October. You know Sean Connery? I'm not going to do an accent. I'm not good at those, okay? But you guys get the picture. Sean Connery, he's in a submarine They are trying to get through the waters undetected. They kill the engines, right? And it actually gets so quiet in the movie that no one even talks because they don't want to get picked up on. It's a life or death situation. I just wonder how many of us really have a submarine faith. Let's go deep, let's get isolated from the world, let's go undetected. Peter and John spoke, they were bold. they tried to get suppressed and they said we cannot but speak so here's where we're going to get practical are you ready church put some pavement down what christians cannot abide by is the order to be silent the church of the new testament would call foul on us for being silent on jesus but verbal about politics sports teams schooling and gluten-free pizza if you have shared your diet, if you have shared your political views, if you have said everyone should be a New England Patriots fan, Dennis Lohman, amen? No, I just, just thought I'd try. <laughs> Peer pressure. All right? If you have encouraged people to do those things and you have been silent about Jesus, the early church would have called foul. Right? We are not, make disciples of Christ, not disciples of personal convictions. Which means this, Christians can disagree on how to fix our national debt. Christians can disagree on our entitlement programs. Christians can disagree about labor unions. Christians can disagree on how to handle 9-11 and its aftermath. Christians can disagree on how best to handle immigration. Christians can disagree on how to school their kids. All of those things we should be informed by Christian principles. But there is still room for disagreement on how we think we should handle it best. There may be all kinds of things politicians, schools, and churches do that you wouldn't do it that way. But hear me on this. There is no room for disagreement on when it comes to proclaiming there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can fall on your knees or you can turn on your heels, but we cannot be silent. Following up the end of the chapter here, we go from annoyance to to the arrest, to the accusation, to the argument, and we find out that God adds. Chapter 4, verse 4, But many of those who heard the word believed, the number of men came to about 5,000, and then we jump down to 23 verses thirty through 37, and we get a picture of a place that we could never go back to. We get a picture of the early church. Now, I'm going to sound kind of creepy for a second, and I pray that you won't judge me. I haven't been able to think of a better illustration, and it's just true, but my wife might say I should have proofread this, all right? So just hold your breath for a second. I love walking down Marginal Way in Agunquot, Maine. Anybody been there? Now, one of the things that I love about Marginal Way is you got the rocky coast on one side, and you got these mega mansions on the other. Now, there is something that has been passed down and somehow it went, it skipped my wife, but it went from Denise to me, okay? And that is, we love houses. We love looking at houses. If you want to invite us in and show us every room, we will say thank you very much. And, and we would get ideas of how to decorate our house based upon how you've done it. And so you have the coast that God created and all of these houses that man has created. And I look over, and it's just exquisite. I dream about living there, and I just look at all these houses that I will never be invited into. I'm not bold enough to knock on their door (laughs) and say, could you give me a tour? But I want to. And so the closest I can get, here's where it gets creepy. You walk at Marginal Way at night. It's dark outside. (laughs) And it's, it's light in their house. And... You get a sneak peek into places that you will never be invited, and the architecture stands strong, and you're looking at the windows, and I'm talking about the best craftsmanship ever, right? Then you look at the fine art, you know, $10,000 pictures hanging on the wall, and it brings warmth to the room, and you see the layout, and you're like, wow. Can you imagine sitting there looking out at this? (laughs) okay all right so don't worry there there isn't a sidewalk by most of our homes i won't be you know stalking you okay or anything like that okay but you get that inside look and i think here at the end of acts chapter four we get to see the darkness of time and it lights up and luke gives us a snapshot of what an early church is like when they go through the dark times of conflict and persecution and the first thing we're going to see in verse 23 real christians what is the early church like? The kind of community that results from doing evangelism. So the first point, the key to doing evangelism. Second point, the kind of community that results from doing it. Here it is. Real Christians make supplication. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That's something natural. You get in a conflict. You go to your friends. You give a report. We all do that. Okay? Here's the Supernatural. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you love it if your reaction was more like the apostles? When something doesn't go your way, when you have been misunderstood, when something has startled you, when there has been persecution against you, that your first response was not to whine, not to plot, but to pray. That is supernatural, church. They just got interrogated, let go. They tell their friends, we're not supposed to preach in his name. And the supernatural thing that they do is they begin to pray. And here's what they pray. Sovereign Lord. Why do we read all those things about sovereignty this morning? Here it is. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalms 2, we read it, why did the Gentiles rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. How do they pray? They are not praying, why do bad things happen to good apostles? No one is asking God that, right? They pray to the sovereign Lord. Now, many Christians in the West struggle with God's sovereignty, and for the next few minutes, you might feel like you're going to receive some whiplash. So what I'd like to offer you is this. Here is a small book. It is called Big God, How to Approach Suffering, Spread the Gospel, Make Decisions, and Pray in Light of a God Who Really is in the Driver's Seat of the World you want to read this in the next month, I will buy you lunch and talk with you about it. Love for you to process it because I know that God's sovereignty can be a big thing for you to grasp. But here's what we're going to learn from the supernatural prayer. Timid Christians have a tiny God. Say it with me. Timid Christians have a tiny God. Say it with me. Timid Christians have a tiny God. This prayer... Confronts all the lies the devil and the world tells us to keep us timid. Who need k- 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 courage, right? Like the lion, Wizard of Oz. These Christians, what we see here, they believe that God is not small. What sovereign Lord? Verse twenty-four. He made the heaven the earth and has seen everything in them. Remind yourself in your opposition, and in your situations, that whatever God ordains is right. Because it is a God who created the entire world. We also learn from Psalms 2 that Bill read that God is not scared. God's not small. God's not scared. When the nations plot, Psalms 2, 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laugh. All these nations are against God. And he looks at them the same way you see a colony of ants marching towards your house. I don't think you're scared. God looks at the nations trying to undo his plot, undo his plan. <laughs> You're like a colony of ants. Why is God not scared? Well, lastly, God is not surprised. He's not surprised because we just read in verses 27, but specifically 28, that God planned for the crucifixion to happen. If you haven't been awake, here's a time to touch base. God planned for the crucifixion to happen, which means this. I ought to run to the sovereignty of God, not run from it when I'm going through suffering. Consider this astounding reality. The most despicable evil the world has ever known, the most treacherous crime ever committed, and the most intense suffering experienced by any human being was planned and predetermined by God. The crucifixion was God's plan, and if God predestined that and can bring inestimable blessing for you and me today from that, why should we think that he has not predestined our sufferings and that he can bring blessings out of them? I find such comfort in in the small display of God's sovereignty this morning. Right in front of you is a sermon card. Everybody get grab one of those. Everybody have a sermon card? This sermon card shows that you can come here on the sermons that you want to listen to. We don't put the preacher by it, okay, because we wouldn't want that to be a case. All right, but this sermon series was planned over four, five, six months ago. In prayer, thought about what we want to do for the summer. We had no idea that today Richard Burley is going to leave with a group to go to New York. And we had no idea, even some of the conflicts that have happened in our church, of which many of you have gotten an email about, that we are going through. And I look and I said, wow, oh sovereign Lord, you gave us Acts 3 through 4 for me this week. No idea that what I needed to know was found in Psalms 2, Oh, Sovereign Lord. I know it's great when the Holy Spirit can change a pastor's message on Sunday morning and say, Hey, guys, when I was reading this morning, I thought I'm going to change the passage up and do this. But I find it just as amazing that the Holy Spirit, through prayer and reliance upon him, can six months ago give us this passage and say, Church, you need this today because you don't even know what's coming. And we come to it and we say, How did you give us this text? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Lastly, real Christians share, and we're just going to make this quick. We peer into the early church, verses 32 through 37, and we see the Christians share. The full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. What does that make you think of? Marriage. The church, one heart, one soul. Makes you think of marriage, I would think. Church, what is amazing is there is no sermon on tithing. There is no sermon series on giving. There is no capital gains campaign. All we know is the early church preached Christ, his death, his resurrection, and it changed the community to come together and to give. Starting to think that maybe some of the world's philosophies of capital gains programs and sermon series on giving and tithing to increase numbers. What if we just preach the death and resurrection of Christ? And if that really believe that, then it will change how you relate to each other, bring us together, and share. The church has five thousand people. Our church has grown, and there's a time to think. Well, the church is bigger; there are more people. I'm less necessary. But it's quite the opposite. The bigger the church, there are more people, so there are more needs. With more people, it is easier to hide. Praise God, we've gone to one service for the summer, so you can't hide anymore. But we know that you are people that have been changed by the gospel of Christ, and you don't want to hide. You want to be people that serve, people that risk. Our elders just last week were talking about Mike Boldy, one of our elders that had to move to New York, who inspired us to go up to people and say this I'm sorry. I don't think I've met you before. Because Mike Boldy wanted to get to know everyone as an elder. And that motivated all of us to try to risk that. And then people say, you don't know me? I've been here since the beginning. How do you not know who I am? Awkward. And they're offended. And we think, I'm not going to do that again. Right? Here's my pastoral decree. No one can feel bad if someone didn't know that you've been born and raised here your whole life. Just introduce yourself. Say hello. Say your name. Don't make them feel bad that you go to the different service. Sometimes I walk up to people and say, hello, I'm Josh. And she says, I married you. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) it's been that many meetings this week, okay? I mean, (laughs) whoa, Good to see you, Laura. All right, I mean, that can happen, all right? Just kidding, all right? She didn't read any of the sermon before it was preached. All right. But if you are here long enough, you are going to be a person who will be able to help somebody else with your time, talents, or treasures. And if you are here long enough, you will need to be helped by somebody else in time, talents, and treasures. God has shared everything with us so that we can share everything with others. Church, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, God, so you can make the gospel clear in the face of fear? Do you value your relationships more than a clear statement of the truth? In church, have we lived out the implications of the gospel visibly? Our relationships in the church can add force to our words that as we testify about Jesus, people should see how those facts of the gospel has actually changed our lives. Would you stand with me and sing to God be the glory, kind of a modern day rendition of it.